Hi, we're joined today by Sebastian Kurtz, the Federal Chancellor of Austria, by Henrietta Four, who's Executive Director of UNICEF, the UN agency that's charged with procuring and supplying COVID-19 vaccines to some of the toughest and hardest to reach places in the world. We're joined by Stefan Bansell, CEO of Moderna in the US, which this week applied for regulatory approval for its vaccine in the US and in Europe by Semeni Pangalos, Executive Vice President of Biopharmaceutical Research and Development with AstraZeneca in the UK, who've just released results for their vaccine, and Paul Stoffels, who's Chief Scientific Officer at Johnson & Johnson in the US, which is also working on a candidate vaccine for COVID-19. But first, I'd like to hand over to the chair of today's call, President of the World Economic Forum, Berger Brenda. We know that uh, every emphasis now has uh, to be uh, also on a sustainable recovery, but then we have, we have to start investing um, for the future, um, to, for the green um, recovery, and also uh, towards uh, digital uh, investments that are necessary. Let me uh, first uh, start and welcome uh, the Bundeskanzler, the Federal Chancellor of Austria, Sebastian Kurz. Uh, it's great to have you here. Um, you've been uh, Bundeskanzler uh, for some years, but you also have been foreign minister, very experienced. I guess this uh, is one of uh, also the most complex uh, crisis you've been faced with. So welcome, uh, Sebastian, and I give the floor for you for some opening remarks, and then I'll have a couple of questions. Thank you very much, uh, Berger, for, for inviting me, ladies and gentlemen. I'm very glad to be uh, together with you today, even so it is only uh, remote, but it is much better than uh, nothing. As you can imagine, 2020 is a very challenging year for all of us. Uh, like most of Europe, we in Austria are currently fighting against the second wave. We are in the final week of our second lockdown over the last three weeks. We managed it to reduce our infection rate by half, but we have uh, still a long way to go. We have a strategy of a soft lockdown until the new year. Um, and we try to combine it with a strategy for mass corona tests for the whole population and, of course, uh, preparations for corona vaccinations next year. Um, I hope uh, that there is light on the horizon for 2021, but um, in our case, we think that we still have another four to five difficult months ahead of us, especially also because of the fact that Austria is quite dependent on tourism. Um, I think there are some areas where we have learned a lot during the last uh, few months. Um, there are some lessons we were able to learn um, in, in this corona pandemic. And I would say the first is definitely um, the value of digitalization. We see how more digitally enabled nations are better able to deal with the crisis than others. And especially in Europe, I believe, we see that our old way of doing things is not always the most effective one. The second lesson for us is uh, the importance of crisis preparedness. We see that our model in Austria, but uh, I think also in the rest of Europe in Western democracies, where we tend to take stability and peace for granted is still vulnerable to crisis. And I think we need to take Corona as a warning to prepare for other scenarios such as cyber attacks or blackouts. And the third point, um, I think the relevance of budgetary discipline should not be over. Um, it is totally understandable in my view um, that we support in the European Union those countries that have been hit hardest by the corona pandemic. But I think that our European Recovery Fund must not be an excuse for just more government spending and less, and less budgetary discipline. These are just three areas um, and some thoughts where I think that uh, we should learn from this crisis and uh, um, don't take steps in the, in the wrong 
direction. Thank you once again for inviting me and looking forward to discuss some of these issues with you. Well, thank you so much, uh, Federal uh, Chancellor. Thank you for uh, those opening uh, remarks. Uh, President-elect Joe Biden has used this term building back better. And if you look at Austria and Europe now, uh, of course, there is this uh, fund of 750 uh, billion euros uh, to uh, then uh, consumption, but also for investments. How do you feel and how do you think and how are you planning uh, to build back uh, securing growth in your own country? And are you, do you think Europe is on the right track um, with the stimulus and, and what is needed also of structural changes uh, for Europe moving forward? Or are we just using it on short-term consumption and keeping jobs that maybe uh, are not there when the Kurzarbeit or Chomage technique or furloughing is over in six, seven months? At the beginning, we were quite skeptical about this 750 billion uh, euro fund because it's a lot of money. It's extremely costly for net payer countries like us in the EU. Um, but in the end, we supported it because we see the need of it, but we think that it has to be invested in the right way. So I would say uh, it is important that we um, invested in digitalization, that we uh, invested in um, uh, sustainability, um, but uh, that we should be uh, careful uh, not to uh, just support the structures as, as we have it. In our case, um, we are very export orientated and uh, of course as long as um, the whole world is suffering, uh, it is um, difficult for an export orientated country like us. We are happy that industries, also car industries, automotive is going much better now than we expected it a few months ago. Um, in our case, our main problem is that uh, nearly 15% of our GDP um, is based on tourism. Uh, and um, for tourism, it's, it's, it's terrible and it's, uh, uh, <laughs> it's not possible to, to solve the situation with, uh, with money. Um, so, so I would say um, I'm happy that uh, in industries it's going better than expected. Uh, on tourism, it will stay extremely negative the whole uh, um, next uh, months and probably the whole uh, year 2021. Uh, and then in the EU, I hope that um, especially in those countries um, where there is a need of getting. Uh, um, billions of euros from this fund, um, it is combined with, with necessary reforms um, and structural reforms and not only deficit spending. No, uh, thank you. I was um, also wondering, uh, inside the EU now, there is some division on uh, unlocking uh, these funds. Uh, we know there is uh, discussions both with Poland and Hungary. How do you see the EU moving forward? Is this something that we, is happening all the time, so we shouldn't exaggerate it? Or are you concerned that when Europe needs to know uh, also assert itself uh, globally, we see that China is going to grow with 4% this year. We know also recovery is coming back uh, in, uh, in the US. The role of EU here um, uh, are you kind of optimistic uh, on medium term for the EU? To be honest, uh, I think the realistic scenario is that we have much more economic growth in China and the US and, uh, and less in Europe. So I, uh, I can't say that I'm extremely optimistic. Um, but I think that the current debate about the budget, uh, the MFF, the question of rule of law, that this is not the main reason. And I'm, I'm not... Um, afraid of this debate because I think uh, it was predictable that we will have this debate. Um, everybody knew it, uh, that it is going to come. Um, we had it several times in the past. Um, we are not happy about this debate, but it's not the first time. Uh, and uh, I think it's not, it's probably another fact that makes a negative image for the um, decision-making processes in the EU but I think it's not the most relevant uh, question uh, for, or it's not the most relevant for the question 
uh, will there be a lot of economic growth uh, uh, or not. So I think um, the debate with Hungary and Poland is difficult. Um, I think in the end there will be a compromise. Um, I hope so. Uh, but uh, I think that there is much, there's, there's too much focus on these um, debates in the EU and less focus on the question of digitalization, uh, how to spend this money correctly, structural reforms, competitiveness. Um, since UK left the EU, um, we have even less debates about competitiveness than we had it before. And I think this is uh, uh, a point that makes, that, that, that is a reason why I'm not so optimistic, unfortunately. I, I know it's a tough one to to raise, but uh, on the Brexit, since you you mentioned it and the and the UK, uh, we know there are tough negotiations now between uh, Barnier and, and and the UK. Um, do you think there's going to be a solution? Yes, I think so, uh, and I hope that there will be a, a solution. Um, but uh, I'm I'm still extremely unhappy that uh, the UK left the, the EU because. Um, in my days as foreign minister, um, I, in many debates, I had the impression that the UK was one of the few countries focusing on um, competitiveness. The UK was always one of the few countries um, bringing uh, on the table a wider perspective than only the EU, with a more global focus on the US, on China, on other parts of the world. Uh, and um, my impression is um, that besides the fact uh, that uh, the EU is now smaller and uh, that we don't have the same power um, militarily, um, besides all these facts, uh, the main problem uh, uh, with the UK leaving the EU is that um, we lose their way of thinking on the table. And I think... Um, uh, this is problematic uh, because all these debates about uh, rule of law, all these debates about um, a social union, these are all necessary. Um, but um, I, I, I think uh, we, are, we are losing um, the perspective of uh, the global perspective of, of UK and that, that, that's what, what will hurt us uh, the most on the long run. Well, thank you. And uh, at the same time, the EU has now to maneuver uh, between the G2, US and, uh, and China. Uh, have you already congratulated uh, President-elect uh, Joe Biden? Yes, we did. Uh, and we hope that um, there's a chance to have stronger ties again between the US and the EU. We hope that um, all the debates about uh, free trade will now be able to solve easily and, uh, of course, as a small country, we are pretty much uh, committed um, to multilateralism. And I think also there, it is good if we have um, a strong cooperation with, uh, with the US. Um, and uh, I see uh, this is a, a, a chance for, for a closer relationship again. Bundeskanzler, uh, as you can see, there are also three CEOs uh, from leading uh, pharmaceutical companies that we're going to have a dialogue with uh, later on, and also Henretta Four, as you can say, uh, here from um, UNICEF. Uh, but on vaccination and uh, the end of the um, you know, light in the end of the uh, the tunnel, um, how do you see now the the pandemic? I, I Thought you said not out of the woods in four or five months. It's going to take time. I guess you are part of the EU mobilization on the vaccination, but maybe two words uh, from your side also on the pandemic and the importance of uh, vaccination. Well, I'm uh, happy, Borg, to have the opportunity to, to listen to the CEOs uh, and uh, to, to learn probably um, more about uh, how, the, how the next uh, few months will, will be for us. Um, of course, for us, uh, vaccination is the is the game changer, and um, um, it's difficult to 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 plan the next year. But uh, um, our perspective is that we hopefully uh, have the chance to vaccinate our risk groups in the first quarter, uh, and have the chance to vaccinate um, broader parts of society in the second quarter. Um, and if this is possible. Uh, we are more than thankful uh, and happy 
because uh, the worst uh, um, part of the crisis was was the time where we had no perspective and nobody knew uh, will it be a crisis of weeks, months, years, or even longer. And so I I, I think uh, we are now in a much better situation. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to listen uh, and probably learn a bit more about what the next few months will will bring. Last question to you, uh, Sebastian. Uh, I guess uh, we all have learned from this crisis, this pandemic. Uh, it has been a crisis management, but with all your responsibilities, if you look back at uh, the last three quarter of uh, a year, what, what are the main lessons you have learned uh, for, for the future and that you always will take with you? Um, also, uh, as the leader of Austria, uh, in the years to come? Well, I would say um, there are three lessons. Um, the first is um, we managed it to have a budget surplus during the last years. Um, and there was always a big uh, debate in Austria if it's necessary or not. Uh, I was always extremely proud that we managed it. Um, and uh, with the crisis, the answer was clear. It was necessary because we needed now billions of euros to support our businesses. Um, so I think um, um, having the budget under control um, in, in normal days uh, of economic growth is extremely important to be prepared. Um, the second point is uh, I think we have to find a way to be faster in decision-making in our um, democracies in Europe. It's not... Uh, that I would like to copy the Chinese model. Um, and I'm very happy to, to live in Europe with all our, uh, with, with all our rights, with our, all our freedoms, uh, with our democracy, with rule of law. Um, but I sometimes had the impression that we are not as fast um, in reaction on crisis as other parts of the world are. And the third point, and that's probably the most important, I think we have to get much better on digitalization, um, no matter if you look at um, contact tracing in finding the pandemic, if you look at online shopping, or if you look at homeschooling, um, uh, a lack of digital infrastructure, um, a lack of digital skills um, is, is, is terrible. Um, in normal days, but especially in a crisis. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sebastian. Uh, this was uh, very, very interesting. And thank you for joining us again. We have uh, thousands of people uh, listening and a lot of our CS CEOs uh, also. So uh, Adrian, I, I leave it uh, note to you. We have a great panel. Thank you very much, Berger. And uh, I want to start by turning to someone whose agency is responsible really for distributing the vaccines to an incredible uh, number of the world's population. That's Henrietta Four. Henrietta, thanks for joining us. Um, can you give us a sense of both the scale of the challenge that UNICEF has taken on and also some of the kind of milestones on the road to delivering on that challenge? Thank you very much. It, it is a challenge, all right. So currently, uh, UNICEF uh, procures and delivers about 2 billion vaccine doses a year. And that is to cover primarily childhood diseases, of which there are many, and they are preventable, and vaccines work, and we know this is important. What COVAX has done is it is now asking us to double that number for next year, and it's to the lowest and the middle low income countries. So it's the hardest places that you mentioned earlier. So um, the challenge is enormous. It's got to be a big public-private partnership. So we need every company that is involved in a number of sectors. So let me just tick through them because we could really use help. Um, countries are going to need help on their supply chains and on their cold chains. Currently, we are used to vaccines that can move in relatively cool temperatures, but not ultra cold. 
but uh, we need supply chain, logistics, and transportation sectors that are all working together. We need to prioritize the transportation of vaccines so that in the lessened amount of cargo space that we can get the vaccines out there and across the boundaries and into the countries. And we need to make sure that we are getting help from the countries about whatever logistical bottlenecks there is in a country, you know, getting it through an airport, getting the approval for the vaccines to move through. Um, then second, we really have to think about the fragility of many of these countries' health systems. Uh, we've been just working on the Sudan recently, and these countries are very fragile. So in countries, we are going to need to help them with their actual systems. And in the poorest countries, it's particularly important. Financial support, technical support, and equal investment in the systems that will deploy COVID-19. And then third, we are going to have to have broad access to testing treatments and uh, continue the communication on physical distancing, hand washing, wearing masks. These are all the tools that we need. We do not have hand washing facilities and a bar of soap in many parts of the world and in many hospitals and community clinics, much less homes or schools. So we've got to get this as a world. And then um, lastly, we've got to put a priority on the frontline workers, the healthcare workers. I'm gonna put teachers in there. We've got to keep our schools open uh, to Sebastian's point about the importance of education and digital online learning. Uh, we just need to be sure that these frontline workers are safe. So big challenge. We could use lots of public and private help. Henrietta, thanks for that. And just give us an idea. We've heard from the UK government just today, in fact, that they're looking at uh, starting vaccinations of top priority uh, health staff uh, as early perhaps as December 21st. How long before your agency is going to be able to start distributing uh, vaccine candidates to health workers in some of the countries you've talked about? So, yes. So um, logistically, we're, we're ready now. Um, part of our puzzle is that um, we have many agreements with existing companies who currently have vaccines that are coming through our system. So they're all ready to go. We have not done ultra cold chain anywhere other than Ebola for DRC. So that will be a challenge for us as a world for logistics. Uh, but for others, there will be many new vaccine manufacturers, many new test manufacturers. So we're quality controlling those. We're doing new agreements with many of those companies, but there are many, many companies that are now interested in this field. So it's opening up. Um, so we're ready now is the answer, but there's one other uh, factor in this, which is that we've got to be sure that we are getting the word out that people need to take the vaccines, that vaccines are safe. There's a lot of vaccine hesitancy and we've got to overcome that if we're going to actually protect the world. Henrietta, thank you. And stay with us, because I know you'll want to hear from our uh, CEOs and, uh, and uh, executives on the progress they're making in terms of delivering vaccines. Um, and I want to turn, if I can, to Semeni Pangalos of AstraZeneca. Uh, Amene, you've been involved, obviously, in the uh, vaccine candidate in development with Oxford University. Um, can you give us an, uh, an, a clue of, as to how that vaccine developments progressing, what the next steps are for you, because I think one of the things that uh, that will appeal to Henrietta and UNICEF is that your vaccine, I think, is one of the ones that is perhaps less challenging for those supply chains. It's easier to distribute. Yeah, and, and I actually want to just call out and thank um, Henrietta for all her support and for um, the support from COVAX. As you rightly say, our, our vaccine is somewhat easier um, to distribute around the the world because it's a traditional refrigerated vaccine and we have um, as part of our commitment to to helping deal with the pandemic committed to doing and delivering and supplying the vaccine during the pandemic at not-for-profit um, and we have around three billion doses um, ready to go by the end of 2021 many of those several hundred million of those doses available in the first quarter of next year and that doesn't include um, in those hundreds of millions 
the um, the supply from Serum Institute of India and our farmers. So um, I do think with the data we have, we have a vaccine that is approvable that will make a, a dent in the pandemic, along with the vaccines from, from Pfizer and Moderna. And uh, I think the supply as early in the year as possible around the world is going to be very important to try and make the dent that we need uh, on this virus and getting us all back to a semblance of normality. What have you learned from the trials that you've undertaken? Because it's a complicated logistical process, getting people to actually take two vaccines within a set amount of time. You know, that requires people who are going to take the vaccine to be disciplined. It requires the distribution to be disciplined. What have, what have been the things that you've learned in the process of doing these trials? Well, they are, they are complicated. And I think the, the, the point around vaccine hesitancy that I'm sure we'll talk about is incredibly important. And of course, different countries and regions have different levels of vaccine hesitancy. And we need to make sure, again, that it, it's not uh, enough to have the wealthy countries vaccinated. It, we have to have the, the world vaccinated. Um, and so we need enough supply um, around the world. Now, you know, the good news, again, with our vaccine, it looks like, you know, the interdose interval for us um, is, uh, is something that doesn't impact the efficacy. Um, so I think in that regard, um, we'll be in good shape. Um, ultimately, you know, the first step for us is to get the vaccine approved in as many countries as possible, and then to work with groups such as COVAX and CEPI, and WHO, as well as uh, you know, all, all the countries around the world that have shown an interest in our vaccine to get it uh, made available as quickly as possible to as many people as possible. Yeah, and, and besides the vaccine itself, you've also got an anti -pro, antibody program that you're developing. Can you just explain a little bit more about how that works? Yeah, so I mean, I think just to take a step back, the vaccine was, um, was the last story we made into, uh, in, into um, trying to tackle this virus. The first was repositioning some of our, well, first actually was trying to make sure that none of our supply of our existing medicines was impacted by the, by the pandemic. So testing our employees and actually the consequence of that crisis creating and becoming part of the UK diagnostic machinery um, to help the UK uh, test um, um, its population was the first thing that we did. Then we had repositioning molecules in our existing pipeline to see whether we could um, actually make a dent into the um, disease that way. Then we initiated our monoclonal antibody program in parallel. Um, it's a very interesting antibody. It's a cocktail of, of two um, very potent monoclonal antibodies that have got half-life extension technology, which means that we think we will have protection with this therapy um, in the prophylactic setting for probably a, around, 12, I would say, nine to 12 months, um, based on the PK data we have so far from our initial human studies. And so this is incredibly important because, as we know, not everyone is going to respond to a vaccine. Some people are immune suppressed, cancer patients, people with autoimmune disease. Uh, people on dialysis and so having uh, therapies in addition to vaccines I think is going to be very important for those uh, some of those vulnerable populations so that started uh, five um, we have five phase three programs uh, starting have started or about to start and again we hope to generate data on the long-acting antibodies um, in the first quarter and first half of, of next year with again a, a, quite a bit of supply millions of doses versus billions of doses though. So it's a different order of magnitude in terms of the supply, but still very important for us. Extraordinary. And Mene, stay with us. I want to turn to Stefan Bansell uh, from Moderna. And Stefan, uh, you've had some extraordinary news this week on, on your vaccine. Um, how, just recalling actually speaking to you back in March on, on this call, um, right at the beginning of the journey, you know, what an incredible nine months uh, it's been in terms of, of you getting this vaccine to a position where you're now going to be able to take it to health workers and start uh, the process of tackling uh, this pandemic uh, head on. Can you just tell us a little bit about that journey and, and where you're at right now? Yes. So actually, you know, we started, like many of my colleagues, uh, uh, racing this virus early in January. We thought initially it was an outbreak. And it's actually at Davos talking to Richard Hatchett and Jeremy Farah several times per day that looking at a lot of data, I say, oh shit, it's a pandemic. Uh, I only read about those you know, in, in history, biology books. Um, and so we doubled down a lot of collaboration with the US government first, you know, Dr. Tony Fauci and our team have been working together for several years. 
uh, and getting this into the clinic quickly in March, then the phase two, because we wanted to make sure we did the phase one, a phase two and a phase three in overall the whole nine yards. Uh, starting a phase three in July, we had never run a phase three at Moderna, so that was our first one. I'm sure a lot of people thought we would not be able to pull it off. Uh, the team did a remarkable job where we got 30,000 people vaccinated between July 27 and October 22nd. Uh, uh, we are very proud of the diversity. Actually, one of the hardest decisions I had to make this year is to ask the team to slow down the recruitment of a phase three uh, because we didn't have enough African-Americans, didn't have enough Latino, Latinx in the study. Um, and the, the study we ended up having as a, a wonderful representation of you know, different ethnic groups. 25% uh, are elderly, as of course, it's very important to know the protection of the elderly. A lot of people with diabetes, you know, heart disease, lung disease, uh, a lot of healthcare workers, a lot of frontline workers. So we feel very good that the study is a good representation. And indeed, you know, two weeks ago, we had the first interim data cut that was very exciting. But on Monday this week, we shared our, our final analysis. So the vaccine has shown a 94.1% efficacy to uh, prevention of disease, meaning 94% of people that get the vaccine don't get disease symptom, uh, which of course is wonderful. But the piece I got the most excited on Sunday when I got the data from my team was the severe cases. We had 30 cases of severe disease uh, and all 30 were on placebo. Uh, we had zero on the vaccine, meaning that, you know, if you get the vaccine, most probably you will have no disease symptom given the high efficacy. Uh, but most probably uh, if you have any sign of disease, it would be very mild disease. And as we know, what has really had a big impact on human life, public health, and the economy is the horrible cascade of severe disease, hospitalization, ICU, and death, uh, which has uh, driven to all the lockdowns, uh, uh, wearing masks, and all the social distancing, and all the, the, the suffering and the mental suffering that, uh, that we know and that is going on as we speak. So that's where we are on Monday. We file at the same time in the US for an approval in Europe uh, to the WHO, which is, of course, very important. Uh, to help around the world, but also in the UK, you know, Switzerland, Israel, Canada, and a few more countries. Uh, the US has set up a date of December 17 for uh, FD advisory uh, committee to review uh, our vaccine. Uh, Europe has announced on Tuesday morning for a press release that they've set up January 12 at the latest to have uh, the committee to review our vaccine as well. Uh, we'll see with the UK if they go a bit faster. Clearly today was a great news for the world that the UK approved uh, the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, it can start protecting healthcare workers and the elderly. Really wonderful news. And so uh, we uh, are on track to have 20 million doses ready before the end of the year. So we're already several millions ready in the, in the fridge to go. Uh, as soon as we're going to get the go ahead, we should be able to start vaccinating within 24 hours. That's a collaboration we've had with Operation Bar Speed in the US. Joel Perna, you know, is a four-star, you know, supply chain general in the U.S. military and has worked really hard with his team to get ready. Uh, he's literally ready to pull the trucks back into the dock and start loading the products uh, when he gets a green light. Uh, the, the big challenge, of course, is going to be scaling up manufacturing. You know, Moderna is still a thousand people company. People tend to forget that, you know, we don't have presence all around the world. We're setting up pharmacovigilance, which is very important to track, you know, potential side effects and people reporting side effects. It's, of course, a legal obligation that is very important. Supply chain is important too. What I'm really happy is, you know, we invested a lot in process development. If you look at the two mRNA vaccines, you know, our vaccine is stored at minus 20 Celsius, not minus 70, which is much easier because there are already some products at minus 20. So a lot of distribution capabilities around the world have minus 20 capabilities. And then the good news we had uh, two weeks ago is we now, we have stability data showing that we can keep a vaccine for 30 days at two to eight Celsius in a regular fridge, like a traditional vaccine. And so the way we think it was, is gonna work, uh, it's not gonna be ideal. Our regular product allow a free life. So they're all, you know, two to eight Celsius in a vial. But because of the pandemic, we knew we needed to go with liquid form of vaccine because lyo capacity was gonna be uh, an issue, not enough lyo capacity in the world and also yield. If you lose, you know, five to ten percent of your mass of vaccine because of a manufacturing step, it's much less people you can vaccinate. And so uh, we we feel that this supply chain works well. Uh, again, in the case of a pandemic, it's not ideal, but we think it works well. 
you can ship to big distribution centers at minus 20, uh, and that capability exists. And then you can ship to uh, pharmacies, hospitals, remote places at two to eight Celsius, which, as Henrietta said, is done for other vaccine, is done for products like insulin, which are widely distributed around the world. So that's where we are. We're on track for having you know, 500 million to a billion dollars next year. Uh, and uh, the team is working as hard as they can 24-7, literally, to get as many products as we can out of the door. We know that uh, life you know, depends on it. You know, we're still losing you know, around 10,000 people a day around the world. I'm sure many more that are not reported, both in direct and indirect cause of death. And so uh, we, we, we have to work together with the piece. I'm the most uh, happy about what I witnessed this year is first incredible collaboration, uh, public-private partnership between governments, academics across industry, uh, the FDA and the regulatory agencies have been exemplary. You know, you used to take 30 days to get a meeting scheduled with the FDA. Some days we had three meetings in a single day uh, just to get moving to problem solve together. Uh, you know, the US government has been very helpful. You know, we got a billion dollar for funding the clinical trial. So basically the US government, if you think about it, has offered to the world the cost of developing Moderna's vaccine, uh, which is going to help a lot, of course, in terms of affordability and access around the world, uh, because the US basically picked up the tab uh, to pay for the development of a product. Stefan, I mean, it's fascinating to hear you talk about the way that Moderna's kind of vaccine program has, has developed and, and also with so few people involved. I mean, you know, you think about those thousand staff working 24-7 to do this. It's a, it's a phenomenal achievement. But I think the next step that people are wondering about is this mass distribution. The world's probably never seen anything like the scale of vaccination that we're going to see in 2021. What can you tell us? Just, I, I know you're part of the of the bargain is is the creation of the vaccine, if you like, and the and the delivery of it to the people who distribute it. But you know, what can you tell us about the challenge that the people actually doing the vaccinations are going to face, having been part of this whole program? Yeah, I mean, the first piece I think is going to be extremely frustrating for the general population uh, that how slow it's going to feel between people reading the headlines those days that there's great news on the vaccine front, and that's another achievement of the industry that I think we should not forget, you know, the fastest vaccine before I think was four years, uh, which is already a great time versus most vaccine, you know, seven, eight, 10 years uh, of development. Uh, again, going back to this incredible collaboration, but uh, I think it's gonna be frustrating because there won't be enough for most people in the world, definitely in the first quarter, definitely in the second quarter, and most probably for the entire year. If you think about, you know, worrying about people uh, around the world, not only in, in rich countries, uh, you know, in rich countries, not only people have cash, but also they have less people. And so it's a math problem of just number of people that you need to vaccinate. And so I think around the world is going to be very frustrating uh, that people will want to get vaccine. I know we talk a lot about all the people who claim they don't want a vaccine, uh, but I think there's going to be a lot of people wanting a vaccine very quickly to go back to normal life. And I think that people that are on the edge when they're going to see that people who get the vaccine don't drop dead in the street are going to realize it's better to take a vaccine and not take the risk of COVID than staying unvaccinated. Uh, I don't think we're going to solve for the classic anti-vaxxers uh, because I don't know how to deal with illogic and not following data and science. Uh, but people that are on the fence because they are surprised, I think, by the speed at which things have moved, which has surprised all of us. If when we met in Davos in January, you will have told me, Stefan, you will have your phase three data of your first phase three 30,000 people study, uh, you know, uh, at the end of November with a 94% efficacy. I would have said, yeah, this is really unlikely. Maybe it's 2% chance this happens on that time frame. Well, thank you for just sharing that and uh, and congratulations on the journey that you and Moderna have, uh, have been on. Um, I want to turn to Paul Stoffels from Johnson Johnson. And Paul, Johnson Johnson have uh, have been perhaps a little quiet in this race, but you actually have a very interesting candidate vaccine, I think, which is a single dose vaccine. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what that means and your role in the whole uh, the whole vaccine uh, scenario? Because as, as Stefan just said, this is not gonna be something that's solved tomorrow. This is gonna be around for months and years to come. 
Yeah, we started at the same, uh, and thank you for inviting me. We started at a similar time frame as uh, as Stefan and the others to work on this. We took a little bit more work on getting to the single dose, uh, and that was tested extensively first in animals and in midsummer into the phase one humans uh, studies, and we could prove that that was viable. Uh, the, we had already worked on in um, RSV and in Zika with a single dose where we could show that that was viable. And so that's what we took on in phase three, and that started mid-September. We are mid-stage almost, uh, uh, but helped by the by the epidemic, by the pandemic, we, uh, we target at uh, finishing our phase three in January, and that would yield in the first quarter definitely uh, an outcome. Um, in parallel, we have been upscaling very hard. So we are uh, focusing on bringing a billion vaccines next year. And a billion vaccines would mean a billion people in, with a single dose, a billion people could be vaccinated with that. Um, and that is uh, hopefully we can, uh, we can contribute significantly in the course of next year to that. In addition to that, uh, we worked on it for many years and uh, also the stability. We have a two to eight Celsius stability for at least three months at this moment for the, for the vaccine, but going forward might be up to a year. Uh, and that will help a, a lot, of course, what Henrietta was talking about, distribution in, uh, in the lower middle income countries where less infrastructure is available. So um, we also committed uh, from the beginning, we have now committed a 500 million allocation to, uh, to the low income countries to make sure that very early on, especially also healthcare workers and high risk people can be vaccinated around the world and not just in the West. So contributing big time and hopefully um, we will get there in the first quarter of next year. Thanks, uh, Paul. I mean, Stefan spoke about the collaboration between government, business, academics that's gone into this whole vaccine race. And um, we talk about it perhaps sometimes as a race, but it is in fact an incredible collaboration. Do you see some of that collaborative kind of architecture staying in place for future uh, developments, for future treatments for people on perhaps other diseases and other issues? No. Yeah, we learned to collaborate already with the larger pharmaceutical industry. We have been working on dementia. We have been working on biomarkers in cancer in different space. And But it's just like, say, on a voluntary basis, people join, people don't join. Also, the interface with the, uh, with the European uh, research as well as with US research accelerated a lot of scientific programs already. But that trained us, let's say. We got some training in how to work together. Uh, now it has been really accelerated. And what, what Stefan was saying on our interfaces with the regulators uh, between all of the in industry partners, as well as with the, um, with the clinical trial centers, the collaboration has been exceptional. 24-7 uh, feedback from regulators within hours instead of days. And, and the trust which has been built between all of the partners that we are all in to combat this pandemic in it's not against each other it's a race against the disease it's a race to to save the world from more suffering uh, from the pandemic and that has been this exceptional experience for all of us and i'm pretty sure that that this will carry over to to research in dementia research in in in, in mental health research in areas which are much more difficult for new products and hopefully we can bring that uh, to fruition going forward Interesting. Thanks for that. I just want to bring Henrietta back in, if I can, because, you know, hearing from, from Mene, from Stefan and from Paul, it's an incredible scientific journey has gone on here. And, but we seem to be faced with this kind of dual challenge. On the one hand, making sure we get the vaccine to people who really want it, wherever they are in the world. And on the other, there is this huge latency of hesitancy about the vaccine itself and about informing people as to how uh, safe it is or as to how uh, they might feel about taking it. And that's a big educational challenge. And how does UNICEF face that with other vaccines? Because as you said, you're in the business of vaccinating people, 2 billion people a year across an incredible scale. So how are you gonna bring some of that experience to this COVID uh, challenge? So about 60% of our partners are local nonprofit organizations who are there before, during, and after disasters of every sort. And they have real trust in their communities. Many of these are women 
and they are well known in their communities and they convey a sense of knowledge, of experience and information about how to keep you and your family safe. So we will rely on these community health workers. They are key in this fight against COVID. Uh, but we also have the help now of many other vehicles, television, radio, SMS, the whole social media platforms. And we've got to use these well so that there is good, credible, trustworthy information and that people are going to trustworthy sources uh, and not to some of the fake news that comes out. So it's a big challenge, but we are going to need to have handbills and have it on buses and in your on your cell phone everywhere so people know that vaccines are available, where they can get them, that they are safe, and that they should be vaccinated. Thanks. Meneg, can I bring you back in here? Because um, you know, you working with Oxford University on this uh, on, on the vaccine candidate that you have in, in preparation. What are you seeing as the challenges in the information sphere? And in, if you like telling people that this is something that A, is good for their health, that they should potentially uh, take, B, that they shouldn't be unduly worried about the speed at which this has been developed, because as Stefan said, this is the fastest ever set of vaccines that we've ever seen really in human history. How do we go about helping people to understand that and from a public health point of view, what are the messages that you think we should be conveying to, to people who might be skeptical as opposed to being in, in denial about the facts regarding vaccination? Yes, I think, I think, first of all, I think we have to be clear as to why we've been able to move so fast. And it's not because we've cut on the quality or the safety standards of our clinical programs. It's because we've done a lot of things at risk in parallel, partly because things have been funded um, by governments around the world, such as the US, which has enabled us to take more risk in terms of the investments that we make, whether it be in manufacturing or in terms of embarking upon large studies, you know, a little bit sooner than we would. But the reality is that the data we have in terms of, you know, we'll have dosed by the time we're done probably 60,000 or more patients. Um, and, you know, the studies that are, that are generating the data now are in, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 patients from the various companies. So I think these are very significant, very extensive programs. I do think um, there's a very important role for experts around the world that are not affiliated to the companies to be playing in terms of educating and making the world comfortable, the quality of the data, the quality of the safety, the quality of the reactogenicity, quality of the immunogenicity data we generate is of a high standard and that ultimately people are going to be benefiting from vaccinating. Because I think at the end of the day, everyone does want to get back to a world of normality, as Stefan said. And the only way to do that is by getting enough adoption of these vaccines that we can start to not be transmitting it from one person to the other. And when we do, that we're protected and unlikely to be uh, becoming ill. Um, so I think there's a, there's a big role for scientific institutions around the world in each region to be playing to educate and inform their populations about what we have and what we don't have to make sure that all of the, 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 the false rumors and the misinformation that we see on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook are actually knocked on the head because, you know, the, the sad thing and frustrating for me is how quickly some of these things become truths, even though they're not based on anything other than fiction. Thanks. Um, I just want to turn back to Stefan, if I may, because one of the things that, that Paul mentioned is just how the collaboration that's been built up over these last few months uh, will hopefully be preserved moving forward into other areas. But one of the other points that came through in something you made was that this is really a massive um, public investment in a health outcome, which could realize incredible uh, benefits in terms of saving lives. Is there a lesson here to you, Stefan, for governments about, about taking these kind of bold initiatives, perhaps on other issues that we, uh, that are less uh, in the news, but equally pressing, things like Alzheimer's, dementia, um, and some of the other kind of big challenges the world is, is facing potentially? Yes, I mean, that's a very important point. And I will start first with infectious disease. Uh, we still don't have a vaccine against Zika. Zika is going to come back. I have no idea if it's next week or in 10 years, but Zika is going to come back. And I think we'll all be wiser if we have a vaccine for that. 
there's a lot of emerging pathogens that could, you know, mutate and turn into outbreaks or pandemics. Our flu vaccines are still not great. Uh, and we were all worried that the next pandemic uh, was going to be flu. Uh, so I think there's still a lot of work to do. And I think there's a lot of things that I've been reflecting a lot and is going to make sure once we launch our vaccine uh, to spend a lot of time with governments is how do we learn from this pandemic on the vaccine development front so that we can even go faster next time. I would argue I have a few ideas of how we could have started a phase three of a vaccine in March instead of July. This means you, we could have had an mRNA vaccine approved by July uh, if we could have started a 30,000 phase three study in March. It would have required investment against maybe 10 pathogens. I would say maybe 20 million bucks per virus. Uh, that's nothing at the global scale, nothing. Uh, a lot of work can be done, you know, preclinical. You know, one of the reasons we move so fast, we took two days to design the vaccine on the computer. Uh, why? Because we had worked on MERS, another coronavirus, with Dr. Fauci's team for two years, looked at a lot of proteins, a lot of animal models. We knew out of the gates that our best chance of the corona with our technology was the, the spike case protein. And we just went with it. Uh, so I think there's a lot of things we can do. Think about how much government spend on keeping nuclear weapons that they don't intend to use. Uh, and the order of magnitude of what we're talking to just uh, make sure we protect ourselves, we protect each other. So I think in infectious disease, a huge amount of work should be done. I think, as you said, across a lot of disease that kills millions and millions of people every year, there's a lot of things we can do. I think the whole theme of eating healthy uh, needs to be much higher on the agenda. Uh, as we know, there's so much comorbidity because of people uh, not being healthy, because of their lifestyle, because of what they eat. Uh, this is another thing that we should do more of. And the other big one, of course, is the environment, uh, which is think about where the planet is heading. Uh, think about, you know, yesterday I had the chance to participate in, in a UNICEF's annual gala. And when you look at a lot of those videos, you say, look at the misery around the world that this virus has created, but think about the misery that's happening around the world because of the environment. Uh, and we are not, as a society, uh, driven enough about the environment. There's a lot of good things happening around the world, a lot of good things. A lot of companies, like I know AstraZeneca, uh, very committed to do a lot of things, but we're not moving fast enough. And when this one is going to go in, impacting the world, like this pandemic is impacting the world, it's going to be bad. And we will not have a vaccine to stop the environment in a year. That won't happen that time. Stefan, a big thanks to you. Thanks also to Paul Menet, Henrietta from Borger and I here in Geneva, and to everyone uh, who's joined us. Thank you for being with us. And thanks for sharing uh, all of your insights and experiences with us this afternoon at the GRD. Thank you very much, everyone. Goodbye from all of us here in Geneva.